Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, a 34-year police veteran, the founder of an organization called the Wounded Blue, which is the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. I'm also the author of several books, including A Cop's Life and the soon-to-be-released Rescuing 911 the fight for America's safety. This program is devoted to the law enforcement community, the mental, physical, and spiritual well-being of this incredible law enforcement community. And everything that we talk about is related to these topics. So uh, before I bring in my incredible guest, I want to do what's called our reality check. And that is where we pay our respects to the men and women of the law enforcement profession who have made the ultimate sacrifice since our last show. I want to pay uh, our, our respects and memorialize uh, to Sergeant Michael Moran of the Cortez Police Department in Colorado. Sergeant Michael Moran was shot and killed while making a traffic stop near the intersection of South Broadway and San Juan Drive at about 11.25 a.m. An occupant of the car shot Sergeant Moran before the suspects fled in the vehicle. Other officers located the two suspects approximately one and a half miles south of the original shooting. One subject was shot and killed after opening fire on officers. The second has been taken into custody. Sergeant Moran was a U.S. Marine Corps Iraq War veteran and had served with the Cortez Police for 11 years. He is survived by his two daughters. Sergeant Michael Moran, Cortez Police Department, Colorado. End of watch, Wednesday, November 29th, 2023. The next is Sergeant Michael Abate of the Nevada Department of Public Safety, Nevada Highway Patrol. This is, um, unfortunately, two officers with Nevada Highway Patrol were killed in the same incident. Sergeant Michael Abate and Trooper Alberto Felix were struck and killed by a drunk driver at 3.23 a.m. off Interstate 15 near D Street in Las Vegas. Sergeant Abate and Trooper Felix had stopped to check on a driver who appeared to be sleeping in his car. Another vehicle hit them and fled the scene. One officer died at the scene. The other officer was transported to UMC Trauma, where he succumbed to his injuries. The subject was apprehended six hours later and was charged with two counts each of reckless driving resulting in death, driving under the influence resulting in death, and duty to stop at the scene of an accident involving death. These officers gave their lives in the line of duty. Sergeant Michael Abate and Trooper Alberto Felix. End of watch, Thursday, November 30th, 2023. May they rest in peace. In addition to these officers who were killed in the line of duty, as of December 1st, there have been 350 police officers who have been shot in the line of duty this year. 350, and uh, the year is not up, of course. This uh, literally averages out to one officer a day. The amount of violence that these officers face is incredible. The other challenges, of course, are, uh, are uh, as, as critical, uh, the mental and physical challenges that these officers face every day. Um, last year, more than 60,000 police officers 
60,000 were physically assaulted in the line of duty. They were shot, they were stabbed, they were beaten, they were hit by cars, they were kicked, they were punched, and the violence continues. This is what the law enforcement community deals with. This is why the Wounded Blue Hour exists, and it is why our organization, the Wounded Blue, exists to aid injured and disabled officers throughout this nation. So um, I want to bring in my guest. I am really pleased to have him on the show. He is a wealth of information. He has a stellar uh, career in law enforcement, more than 30 years with uh, the uh, uh, Tulsa Police Department. He is a retired commander. He's also been training officers for years and years uh, through his training company. He's written books. He's been doing speaking engagements all over the nation. Uh, Dr. Travis Yates is my guest. Travis, thank you so much for joining me here at the Wounded Blue Hour. Well, Randy, it's such an honor, man, and I can't thank you enough for all you've done uh, for this fine profession. So thank you for having me. It is a pleasure, and I'm really, really looking forward to having this conversation. So um, this is going to be about the state of policing in America, the state of policing in America and how it relates to the physical, mental, and spiritual well-being of those men and women who serve. So, Travis, you and I could literally talk about these topics for hours, as we have in the past. Right. But I want the audience to get uh, a little bit, um, a little bit more familiar with you. Would you talk about, you know, your police career, um, where you grew up, and um, what was it that um, gave you the inspiration to join the law enforcement community? Uh, well, you probably can't tell it from my slang, but I was actually born in Southern California. My father was a Los Angeles County deputy uh, after serving in Vietnam. And at some point when I was little, he decided he wanted to raise his family in California. I assume he should have gone to Vegas because that was a pretty good prediction. <laughs> and uh, man, he threw a dart at a dartboard. I ended up in Fort Smith, Arkansas, about a, a difference of places you can imagine than Torrance, California. Uh, but I grew up there. My father was in law enforcement there. He spent 27 years with the Fort Smith Police Department. So as a kid, Randy, I didn't need Superman or Batman to be my heroes. I hung out with my dad's friends and I saw these guys and gals all the time. And uh, it was a pretty amazing childhood getting to grow up in that. My dad worked narcotics for most of his career. So it was the 80s, the crack war. I saw all the different seizure cars and I saw my first cell phone in the 80s. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen and nothing but fond memories. But I didn't really have an interest in going to law enforcement. Uh, my, my father and my mother, they just they didn't really push me one way or the other. And I had an athletic background. I was uh, I was going into college sports and uh, I figured I was going to do something like that. And when I was 19 years old, I went on a police ride along and it blew my mind. It was one of these ride alongs. And some of your audience knows that some ride alongs are kind of like boring. Some are like TV. This one was like TV times two. I think you were in an episode a couple of times in this ride along, Randy. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember looking over at the guy and I said, man, they pay you for this. He goes, oh yeah, every two weeks. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I was in college at the time, changed my degree to criminal justice and never looked back. And the only reason I ended up in Tulsa is I started applying everywhere. And uh, Tulsa was the first one to hire me. I hired on at 21 years old, moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, didn't know anybody. All I knew was kind of what to do, what, my, what I saw my dad do, just work hard, try to treat people right. 
that's what I tried to do. And, uh, and the years clicked by pretty quick. And I, I literally, I served in almost every division of the police department. Uh, just got, got great fond memories. Uh, couldn't ask for anything else, you know, went to all the training, FBI national academies, did all this different stuff, uh, a ton of opportunities. And, uh, you know, and, and it became time, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I started recognizing that there needed to be another chapter. I needed to try to reach a lot more people. And it was very, it was getting very difficult. I was training while I was on the department, but I was burning vacation time. And, and, uh, you know, I don't, Randy, you probably know, but when you do things outside of your department, you know, it's not always comfortable. And I certainly had those years that weren't that comfortable with why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And I would usually say, well, I'm on vacation. Why do you care? Right. But, uh, but, you know, I had I plan, had plenty of folks that supported me, had a few folks that didn't like me too much because of my involvement in some of the national issues. But I thought, you know, it's time to do this full time and try to reach as many people as I can, because I really see that the profession is sort of a it could go one way or the other. Randy, I don't like the way it's going. One of the things that really tore me up when I left the profession is, is I believe that my generational law enforcement is the first generation that left this profession worse off than when we found it. Everybody that goes into a profession, you want to leave your mark. You want to leave that profession much better. And the last several years, I believe anyone that's retiring today, that's been here 20, 30 years, this profession is worse than it was when we started. So I'm, I'm on a mission, uh, Lord willing, the rest of my life to try to help turn that around. You know, that's a startling statement. And it's one that I, I have not given thought to. But when now that you brought it to my attention, you're 100% right. You know, the, um, you know, you know, you and I, grew up in an era where, where as a police officer, um, the, the, the family, it was, it was passed down through the generations. It was a source of pride for the parents to pass, you know, the, 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 uh, the torch, so to speak, to uh, their sons and daughters to join the police, the police department. And, um, and I think there was like, if I remember correctly, around 85% back in the 70s and 80s uh, of, of uh, police parents recommended to their children and and tried to inspire them to join the, the the police ranks well what do you think that what do you think that uh, that that percentage is now Travis well I saw a survey a few years ago and I want to say it's in the teens uh, some, somewhere around that it's very very low and you're right, and that's that is that is the evidence right there that we've that uh, this generation has left it um, uh, less less successful than than the, than past generations. Uh, that's a great point. So um, talk about some of the um, now you 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 um, retired as a commander. That's that's yes, a sir. very very high rank, and the agency that you're in is a very large agency. So you yes, did sir. a lot of other different things during your career. Which do you, which do you think was your favorite assignment? Oh man, I had a lot of great ones. I will tell you, I was in special operations for a while, which is uh, all the cool toys, right? Helicopters and bomb squads, uh, SWAT teams. I was the commander over that, so I didn't really know a lot about that stuff, but I got to be around these heroes every day. But that wasn't the favorite part of that assignment. Uh, went, while I was there, I launched the Police Athletic League. And most people understand what that is. We didn't have one here. And I was able to start that from the ground up and pull in an officer. And we worked out of my office at the time doing that program and we reached 10,000 kids the first year with literally no budget and one officer and just me some of the times and to see that firsthand was pretty cool uh i had a really good time during those years uh doing that, that that's great what a what a, a contribution um 
Now you you are you have your doctorate. What is your? Can you explain? I mean, you that, that's not an easy thing to get. You've been continuing <laughs> with your education for literally your well, whole career. I I think if they would have told me uh, what it entailed when I started, I may not have done it. Uh, <laughs> I got my graduate degree because I was young and bored. I hadn't met my wife yet, and I knew. I knew I couldn't stay out of trouble if I didn't keep myself busy when I was 22, 23 years old. So I went back to school when I was young, got my graduate degree. And, and, and really, I had a mentor. His name's Dr. Bill Heck. He's now passed away. But he, he tried to convince me at the end of that program to get my doctorate. Now, this was in the mid-90s, right? There wasn't a lot of doctorates, especially in criminal justice, out there. And he, he said, hey, we need more of this. And I said, okay, what, what do I have to do to get it? He says, oh, you just need to quit your job and go to Houston, Texas. I got an inn at Sam Houston State. We'll get you. I said, hold on here. That's not really going to happen. But that was always <laughs> in the back of my mind. And so as I started preparing for retirement uh, several years ago, just my default, Randy, has always been education. I was raised uh, education. I was the first one to graduate with a bachelor's degree in my family. And there was no there was no way out of that. From the time I was a toddler, I can remember my parents telling me that was what was going to happen. And so it was always my default. So I I started looking around at uh, doctorate programs and I had become uh, in recent years just enamored with leadership. I see leadership as everything bad in this world, including law enforcement because of leadership and everything good in this world, including law enforcement because of leadership. I see it as a central focus of solving issues everywhere is leadership. And so I wanted to do something in that. So I ended up going to Liberty University, which made it very easy because they have a robust online program. I uh, went online and got a doctorate degree in strategic leadership. And I will tell you, um, I got kind of used to the schedule. You know, people that's gone to back to school uh, sort of knows that you're sort of a schedule and you got to turn these things in. And then they get to the end and they say, hey, here's your certificate of completion. I said, oh, hold on here. I thought it was a doctorate degree. They said, oh, that requires a dissertation. And that's a whole other topic of discussion. And so I, I got into that dissertation and they literally just give you this book about 300 pages and they go, here's your guidelines with no other help really and uh and uh but i i, I kind of laid off about a month or so and i thought if i don't get on this because about 50 percent of people don't finish a dissertation because it's so ridiculously dumb and i wanted to, i want to tell everybody out there that these doctors before people's names including mine doesn't make people smart randy There's, i'm not any smarter it just means that we're stubborn is all that it means right i was not going to quit i wasn't going to give up and so i recognize i better get after it so i, I got done the dissertation in a little, little under a year and uh, I, I don't think, listen, it may, be, it may be for some people, but I will tell you uh, there's some challenges there, but uh, it's obviously something I'm proud of. And, uh, and uh, it, was, uh, it was probably the hardest thing. I thought promotional tests and things like that were difficult. This was by far the hardest thing to get through. And, and I'm certainly glad I did it, but I'm certainly glad that it's over. <laughs> okay. You know, um, so let's talk about your, your writing career as well. I mean, I know that leadership um, is, is, f is first and foremost in your, in your heart and in your mind. And your book, Courageous Leadership, um, that's, that's an amazing book. I've read it. And um, let's talk about what, what um, caused you to write that book and how it has affected your life. Well, for Andy, I got to thank you because uh, people don't know this, but you were one of the first ones that read that uh, in pre-release and you gave me a great endorsement. Uh, it's called The Courageous Police Leader. And it's been amazing. I wrote that book four years ago. And uh, just this week, it was on the top 10 in, in, the, in, in its category still to this day on Amazon. I, it's amazing to me, but I think it also is a reflection of the state of law enforcement because I recognized many years ago that we had a leadership problem. And let me just take you back when I started 30 years ago, 
you know, I, I was working for this sergeant, Vietnam vet, firearms guy, SWAT guy, real tough dude. And I remember thinking to myself, I cannot believe I grew up with this dude. Now I got to work with this dude because this guy was just like my father. But I look back going, man, I miss these guys and gals. Like they would never have put up with what we put up with the last few years, Randy. These, if you, if you would have taken a time machine back to the sergeants, lieutenants and commanders 30 years ago, what we're going through right now would have never happened because they would not have put up with it. They would have defended you when you were right instead of letting the wolves come to get you. And so what has occurred, what has occurred post Ferguson, and it's really since 2009, people don't remember this, but President Obama in the Cambridge incident actually, first off, I don't know why a president is making a comment about a misdemeanor arrest in Cambridge, but he does on primetime television, but he makes this statement on primetime television. Yes, everybody remembers when he called the officer stupid. Okay, people remember that. What they don't remember is, is the statement after that when he said, and there's another problem above and beyond this incident where a lot of African-Americans, Latinos are disproportionately arrested and stopped by law enforcement. And since that day, that disproportional verbiage has been used against law enforcement to literally destroy the utter foundation of this profession because our leaders have been unable to answer that. And there's easy answers for that. Just because something is disproportional doesn't mean it's racist. And everybody with a brain knows that. Last time I went to a hockey game, a little bit disproportional. Last time I went to an NBA game, a little bit disproportional. None of that means racism. It just means that there's other issues going on oftentimes. But our leaders, instead of answering that and defending this profession, have cowered to that. And you can probably link that into all of the dumbest reforms and dumbest ideas that's come out uh, from not only police organizations, but police departments. And it has just eroded the foundation of the profession and we've not been able to catch up. And so I started training in a leadership class. I, I, I've taught leadership for years. I've taught training for years and I didn't want to teach leadership, Randy, but I thought to myself, man, all this other leadership stuff isn't working. I mean, I've been to all of it, you know, per for all the East Coast chiefs go to die, FBI, <laughs> NA, which is NA to AA. I've been to all these, all these, and these, these things are great in and of itself, but all of these leaders have been to that and they permitted what happened to our profession to happen. And so I thought to myself, and I was complaining to Keith Winslow, retired Dallas Sergeant, a mentor of mine. He said, hey, quit complaining and get after it. Well, I was, I did not want to teach leadership to law enforcement because I've been in those classes and I see the eye rolls because we know, sit and, sit and listen to the instructor and leadership, Randy, that they're full of it because if leadership worked, we wouldn't be in the state we're in. But I thought I could do something that was different, that was practical, that could impact the profession immediately. And we launched that seminar almost 10 years ago. And I believe it's done that. I've heard back from a lot of folks and I go back to a lot of cities teaching that class. Don't get called by a lot of major city police departments to teach that class or chiefs conferences, but I get called by a lot of other people. And so I saw the impact it was making. And so I decided about 2017 that if I could put this in a book format, it could reach more people. And that book came out in 2019, actually July 4th, 2019. And I think it has reached more people, but it certainly did not make the impact I was hoping because of course, 2020 happened and everything after that. So we have a long ways to go and I'm just doubling down on the efforts I've been making over the years. And I'm hoping that we can, because I, I truly believe that's how we save this profession, Randy, is leadership. And the people I'm talking to now may be sergeants or officers, but they'll be the top dogs one day. And I'm hoping to be able to get to them early and to convince them of some things that I think everybody knows that people are scared to do, hence the word courageous leadership. It's uh, you, you are on a mighty task, my friend, you know, yeah. and, and, and all and leadership has a, a profound and dramatic uh, relationship to the mental and emotional well-being of the of the working cop. 
Uh, I mean, there's a there's such a direct link. Um, I was having a conversation with a, a police officer uh, just days ago, um, and he was injured physically in the line of duty, but re recoverable injury. Um, but the way that his department treated him once he was injured, the way his leadership treated him, actually um, f created um, a, a, a post-traumatic stress issue. It wasn't the physical. It wasn't the physical injury. It was the emotional damage that was inflicted upon him by his own leadership. How do we change that as a, as a, as a profession? You know, you're, you're hundred percent right. Uh, I kind of laugh when we talk about the recruiting issues or retention issues in law enforcement, and we think throwing money at it or throwing signing bonuses at it works. That's not why people are leaving this profession. It's not about the money. It never has been. You're not going to attract anybody to your profession when you don't lead them and don't support them. And, and, and you ask, how do you change it? One leader at a time. You know, I actually think that a lot of the, the chiefs, I'll, I'll pick on big city chiefs now, or a lot of the people at the top now that are doing this, they're just going to have to go. Like we got to bring, I don't think you're going to convince them otherwise. They are so knee deep into politics and trying to make people happy that have nothing to do with the mission of law enforcement. Uh, they're going to have to fail on their own and we'll have to get rid of them. I'll tell you how, how much of a failure the profession is, Randy. When was the last chief you heard of that got fired because crime was high? You can't find one. They don't fire chiefs for high crime, but that's our sole mission. Our mission is crime and crime reduction. And these chiefs aren't held to that standard. And so um, I actually think if we don't change our ways, you're going to see a lot of municipal departments going away. You're already seeing some of the smaller ones going away. And you'll see sheriff's departments sort of taking them over because that's the last bastion of law enforcement. They understand the mission because the people that vote for those sheriffs won't vote for them if they don't understand the mission. And so there's not an easy answer on how you solve it quickly. Other than I believe uh, calling people out and shaming people has its place. You know, uh, I'm not a big popular person on the IACP circuit because I've called out a lot of these big city <laughs> chiefs, you know, on some of the stuff they're doing. But the problem is, if it's just me, it doesn't bring what it needs to bring. And we're trying to encourage more people to speak up because the officers that work the streets and many other people, they know what's going on, but they're they can't speak, as you know. So they need people to speak for them. And so I would I would challenge everybody that maybe has that uh microphone so to speak you need to, if those chiefs or sheriffs aren't supporting those officers we need folks like you randy and others to speak up and support those officers in a very public fashion because that gets their attention uh that's why they're doing some of the silly stuff because somebody maybe on the other side is doing something publicly so i think we've got to do that uh, uh and and i'll just give you one quick example uh, phoenix police department uh is is very encouraging to me uh there were some uh citizens in the city of Phoenix that saw this consent decree come and they saw a DOJ investigation. And they, from what I understand, they tried to get the leadership in the department's attention of how horrible this stuff has been around the country because nobody goes on vacation to a consent decree city. It destroys cities, it destroys communities. And so there were some pretty smart citizens that recognized this. They couldn't get the attention of the leadership in Phoenix and they kind of got the idea that, hey, this is kind of, they're trying to, they're trying to make this happen. So they went out on their own and they started emailing counselors they put up a website, savephx.com, that brought in all of its consent decree information. And they, these citizens, and, and there may or may not have been inside sources there. I don't, I don't have a lot of privy to that information, but these citizens in, the, in that community, so to speak, recognize this. And I think they are very close 
to challenging the Department of Justice to get them away from the Phoenix Police Department when you had internal forces inside Phoenix that was kind of there to bring them in. People don't recognize, people don't know this, but usually the DOJ, when they come to a city, they sort of have their inside moles making that happen. Most of the time, the police chief, maybe attorneys. In Phoenix's case, I don't know the guy, but he comes from Louisville to Baltimore to Phoenix, all consent decree cities, right? So right. it's probably not a secret why he's in Louisville. I don't know that for a fact, but but he's hired in Phoenix because he's had, he has consent decree experience, which is crazy. But anyway, but it's good people that recognize what's important that stood up. And we just need more of those people. Some people refer to that as a silent majority. I don't like that term because being silent doesn't help. We need people to stand up because that certainly tends to get people's attention. The, we're going to talk a little bit more about consent decrees. I got to take a hard break right now and uh, stay with me. I'll be right back with you. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. One Nation Coffee. 
One Nation Coffee, patriotic, uh, veteran-owned, very, very good coffee. I actually went down and visited their roasting facility and met with the folks down there, uh, John and his crew, and they are amazing people. The coffee is delicious. You order it online, they bring it right to your house. You can get the ground coffee, you can get beans. I like to grind my own. They've got uh, also got these, uh, you know, the the containers that you put in your Kerrig or whatever that thing is called. So um, One Nation Coffee, go to One Nation coffee.com order your coffee and uh you'll get great coffee and you'll be supporting uh, a patriotic company that supports the wounded blue so uh go to onenationcoffee.com I also want to tell you about OfficerPrivacy.com. Very uh, unique company, and it's uh, law enforcement owned. It was uh, designed to be a part of officer safety. And let me tell you why. Um, This was a topic I didn't even know existed. But um, OfficerPrivacy.com, they came to me, the, uh, the owner, P. James, and he told me how easy it is to get private information about me or about you from the internet, including where you live. Well, that that makes me very uncomfortable. And for any cop in America, it should make you uncomfortable. You know, we always talk about officer safety, but this is one area that uh, that I neglected for for all of my career until it was pointed out to me. So what they do is they and he only hires uh, current or former police officers to do this. They go into the actual internet when they find uh, they find uh, sites that, that where you are um, where information about you is located, and then they get rid of it. And uh, they found like thirty five pieces of private information about me, and they were able to eradicate it. So go to officerprivacy.com. You owe it to yourself, you owe it to your family, you owe it to your profession. Officerprivacy.com. Tell them Randy told you about it. Now, I also want to talk about the Wounded Blue. The Wounded Blue is the organization um, that has been now been in service for almost five years. And we have helped more than 14,000 police officers. We are a very unique charitable organization. We are the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers, whether your injuries are physical or emotional and psychological. There is all kinds of help out there available. And the peer team of the, of the Wounded Blue is some of the most dedicated people I've ever met in policing. Everybody in, on the team has been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up and screwed over, faced post-traumatic stress and come out on the other side of the abyss. They've walked in your shoes, and that's what makes them so unique and so heroic. Go to thewoundedblue.org if you are, uh, if you are facing issues, uh, whether they are physical or psychological and, and emotional. And I tell you what, we're a charity. We really need your help. Please go to thewoundedblue.org, hit that donate button, give what you can. Please, 10 bucks a month even will we'll go a long way to help. Um, if you want to be, become a sponsor of either this program or The Wounded Blue, please connect with me 
randy at thewoundedblue.org. That's randy at thewoundedblue.org. Uh, these heroes that we serve need heroes like you. Let's bring Travis back in. Travis, thanks for, for waiting for me, buddy. Um, I, I want to read a, an article that just came out, uh, was sent to me today. And, I, and I'm just going to read a little bit of it, and then I, I want to discuss it with you, because it is, it's, it's eye-popping. It's uh, um, written by Christopher Rufo, who is a, uh, a fellow, I believe, at, I think it's the Manhattan Institute, um, but he's, he's a prolific writer and conservative writer. Um, and and it, just the title, Will It Be Riot Season Again in 2024? And he, this is what he writes. The resurgence of public protests in support of Hamas has revealed a disturbing truth. The left-wing rioting following George Floyd's death in 2020 was not an anomaly, but a tactic that activists can repurpose for any cause. Whether by coincidence or design, these recent outbursts could be a dress rehearsal for possible violence during next year's election campaign. Conservative leaders must prepare for that prospect to prevent 2020 from repeating itself in 2024. Conservatives need to consider what might spark a riot, how it can be prevented, and how to understand and manage the politics of writing. First, what could generate a riot, a riot season? Left-wing agitation has some familiar causes. Police involved death of a black person, an international conflict, an economic crisis, but another threat looms. Former President Donald Trump, the frontrunner of the Republican nomination, faces multiple criminal indictments. Trump may well be convicted and imprisoned, likely yielding explosive consequences, including possible violence from both sides of the ideological divide. Progressives are restless and ready. Left-wing activists have established a constellation of institutions to support public demonstrations, protest NGOs, media entities, research centers, black block networks, and bail funds are all finely tuned to mobilize mass movements. The left carefully manages its licit and illicit factions. Progressive political leaders tacitly delegate the dirty work to anarchist and radicalist factions, which can change costumes, for example, from a BLM mask to a Palestinian keffiyeh at any moment, and it goes on. This is a startling um, uh, piece of work that, that Chris Rufo wrote, and it is 100% right on, in my opinion. Um, what we saw, and, and you and I are absolutely in agreement, where we saw the deterioration of the respect of law enforcement uh, under the Obama administration. And that's where it began, but it is certainly progressing to this day. Um, what are your thoughts on what I just read to you? Well, there's a reason why Ferguson was 2016 and George Floyd was 2020. Do the math. 2024 is among us. And there's a reason why it will continue because it works. And it works because of the failed leadership in law enforcement. I don't put any stock into political leadership because very few of those are leaders. But law enforcement traditionally knows how to deal with the riots, Randy. Uh, yes, you have the First Amendment right to protest, but when it turns into criminal actions, 
we take action and people go to jail. But in 2020, we forgot about that, right? And and we let people do whatever they wanted. And it does change things. It does change dynamics. It does change the culture. It does change people's ideas. So until law enforcement can start doing this the right way, and there's not a huge benefit for doing this, it will continue. Now, do I have confidence that we have learned from our mistakes? I'm afraid not, not until I see actual evidence. So um, it, it certainly is going to continue. And... Uh, and it's so obvious at this point, it's so frustrating from someone sort of looking at it on the outside going, it's so obvious. What Chris writes is so obvious that how many agencies right now are talking about this? Hardly none, right? Even though it's just happened just a few years ago. Um, and you also know what happened in 2020 when you let a few of them go. Then you next thing you know, you have 600 of them. So if you if you stop this immediately when it began, it would stop. But I'm not real confident that a lot of our police department's leaders, including the major cities and urban environments, are willing to do that or even capable of doing that. You know, uh, having gone through the uh, the Rodney King riots back in in uh, in the day, we as a profession learned something from that and we began training differently to um, to combat those type of conditions. But one thing that I saw in the 2020 riots and also after Ferguson, um, law enforcement didn't seem to learn anything. They didn't seem to change. They didn't seem to, to begin a different training program. They didn't seem to, um, uh, to prepare for future conflicts. And by not doing that, there's been this, this they, they've dropped the ball. So when when these conflicts happen they snowball out of control and there doesn't seem to be any um any real mechanism put in place to control it and and i it's it's my feeling i like your opinion but police leadership has been um what's been put in place in police leadership has been for only political purpose purposes and not for law enforcement purposes. Yeah, that's that's huge. We, we, we pick top police leaders, especially based on politics and, and not competence. But we have leaders that are more afraid of YouTube and what things look like than the effectiveness. You know, there's no pretty way to enforce riots, you know, but it's not going to look good on television. But I think we have leaders that are more concerned about how something's going to look than whether their cities are actually safe. And then that obviously rolls downhill all the way to the line officer where they're afraid of using force and they hesitate because of how something looks. And so we're, we have to get back to that because I cannot emphasize this enough. When you let your cities degrade, when you let these riots rule, when you let violent crime rise, if you truly believe in Black Lives Matter, then that's who is affected more disproportionately, to use that phrase from President Obama, than anybody else. There's been thousands of more African-American murders and assaults since 2020 than there was before, disproportionately, because law and order has been dismissed in many cities. So this this doesn't just help America as a whole. It helps, it helps many Americans that don't have the means to help themselves, that may be living in uh, impoverished environments that need the police more than other people do. These politicians that make these rules, Randy, they don't need police. They have their own armed security guards. They live in mansions, right? Uh, but we're talking about citizens that certainly need the police. And so uh, by continuing to degrade the profession, that's actually who we're hurting worse than others. 
You know, there was uh, there have been several uh, major studies done by um, prestigious universities uh, that that and, and all related to police racism, institutionalized police racism, and all of these studies have come up with the same with the same um, type of of uh, ending, and that is that police racism does not institutionally exist. That are, are, are there aspects of, uh, of uh, or people that are involved that may have racist tendencies, of course. But the, not only was that discovered during these studies, but also that, that the communities, including communities of color, want and demand more police, not less police and more aggressive policing, not less aggressive policing. So in essence, everything that the political left has put out there has been false, and yet even though there are demands from the, uh, I mean, I, I just uh, uh, was read a story about Baltimore. Baltimore, of course, is one of the most failed law enforcement cities in the country. Um, and and for, for a myriad of reasons, but the, it is, as a, as a result of the politics, the cops have been basically hamstrung and told not even to make arrests in, you know, of drug dealers in these communities. And the people are demanding mm -hmm. that the police police. And yet it's falling on deaf ears within the political community that is in charge of these big cities. And I don't yeah. know what the answer is. Well, the answer is those those same folks need to vote differently. You know, there hasn't been a Republican charge in Baltimore in 40 years. There hasn't been a Republican charge in Chicago in 50 years. I just heard the Chicago mayor uh, blame all of Chicago's problems on Republicans. And there's not a Republican that even holds an office in that city. Uh, but for some reason, uh, they're holding the power in those cities. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out that these policies are failing to the safety of their citizens. And I feel horrible for these citizens. You look at Minneapolis, which is probably we're witnessing in real time the movie The Purge. Anybody that could afford to leave Minneapolis left Minneapolis. So the people that are there are people that can't afford to leave. And they're there in that environment. And, they're, and many of them are... Uh, of my, uh, minorities, right? Uh, disproportionately, minorities are being affected by crime around this country. And I, I'm always shaking my head at some of these leaders that, that say they're for minorities, but the policies they're implementing are actually hurting those minorities more. And you're right, Randy, we have a, a false narrative of racist cops that no peer-reviewed, I'll say peer-reviewed research, because they'll, 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 they'll pull out some article or something, but it's not peer-reviewed research. It doesn't back it up. But and, and that drives many of the leaders of law enforcement to make certain policy changes or training changes, but it's based on faulty information. Uh, they, so they don't really believe in the science, so to speak. They believe in rhetoric. And this rhetoric is harming communities and it's, it's harming the safety of citizens. And, and we need people to stand up, even though you're gonna get called names, right? Because we live in a world now, that if you just go against the prevailing narrative, they're gonna call you horrible names. Well, we have to be willing to take that because the alternative is something that I don't think anybody wants to see. You know, I want to I want to talk about um, the ugliness that we're seeing in these protests across the United States. Um, I, I I personally am am so concerned about what I, what I can only consider a moral decay that that directly affects law enforcement. And the law enforcement community. The moral decay that I'm referring to is the blatant uh, 
um, hate that is being directed at at uh, um, uh, the the Jewish communities and and Jewish peoples in this nation. I I would never have believed that we could be seeing um, a a uh, surge of people who support a, a, a terrorist organization that has that has conducted itself with such viciousness and murder and rape and and it almost on a level that is when I use the word unbelievable I, I mean it I mean it in every sense and we are seeing people across our nation and protests that turn violent in support of these animals and once again to the point that you just made we're seeing the police who are always going to be in the middle once again being not effective due to the politics and the orders of their leadership both within the agencies and of course the people who are pulling the strings are what are your concerns about this is does this bother you as much as it bothers me well, it certainly should bother every good good American citizen, but it's not surprising. Uh, Randy, when society permitted citizens to treat law enforcement the way they have over, over the years, to get in their face and call them awful names, to riot, to, I mean, the disrespect, you know, wearing a police uniform is the last bastion I get to be, I get to be discriminatory against you just because you're in a uniform. And every cop out there has had that happen to them. And it's, it's almost permissible. Uh, from our from society at large. So when we permit that to occur, it shouldn't be a surprise that other things start occurring. No one is putting their foot down and saying this is wrong. And so it kind of reminds me of the biblical passage that in the end days, what will seem what will be right will be seen as wrong, will be wrong will be seen as right. And if you're to say anything about it, it they do what I call this doopsy do, where they actually blame you for doing exactly what they're doing. Right? It's pretty amazing stuff. And so. Yeah, and the, the question is, well, how does this stop? Well, the problem is, Randy, this has been a long play, right? I mean, you, you can go all the way back to our education system and our college systems where, where we're teaching kids. I mean, I think I, the last stat I saw that 40% of college kids don't like America. How did we go from Rocky Three to now in just 30 years, right? And it's because we've been almost brainwashing and indoctrinating our children. Well, one day those college kids are gonna be CEOs they're going to be over police departments. They're going to be entrepreneurs. And if they bring that rhetoric with them, that is not good. And so what you're seeing happen to law enforcement is a byproduct of all of that. We're, we're one piece of the pie. And if, if, if we permit, hate, permit people to hate law enforcement, don't be surprised if they start hating everybody else, including you. Well, let's talk about the hatred to law enforcement and how it directly affects the um, the mental and physical well-being of our cops. So, on the physical side, um, at the at the at the start of our show, I I gave the terrible statistic of 350 police officers having been shot so far this year, and 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 the 60,000 that were physically more than 60,000 that were physically assaulted last year. So you have a, a direct correlation between what we have seen in society and the degradation of our 
uh, of our morality and 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 what we have seen as far as the allowances um, being accepted of violence towards police. That extent, of course, is the is is the direct physical um, aspects of 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 the safety. But now let's talk about the psychological. You know, you 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 um, interact with police officers on a continual basis, and you have for for decades. What are you seeing now when it comes down to the emotional health of the, of our of our law enforcement community? Well, one of the biggest evidences I ask in class, uh, show, me, show me your hands if you know somebody, not yourself, but if you know somebody that left this profession early, like someone was going to stay 20, they left at 15 or 25, left at 20. There hasn't been a class in the last two years where every hand did not go up. So everybody knows somebody that's leaving this profession before they wanted to. And the toll is tremendous because assaults are not new. Officers being shot are not new. But what is new is, is the support on the back end of that. You know, we don't have the leaders predominantly that will support you in defending your own life, that will support you and give you the training and the tools and the resources to defend your life. So this is in the back of the mind of the officers. So we, we expect that there will be bad people to do bad things to us, Randy. But what we never figured out, what we never expected was, is our very own people oftentimes will turn their back on us when that occurs. There are officers that, that think to themselves, and I talk to them all the time, well, if he's holding a gun, I can't, I can't shoot him yet. He's got to point the gun at me. Well, you, you've already lost, right? When you look at action v reaction, but they're scared. They're more scared of YouTube and and social media than they are actually going home at night. And that all comes from leadership. And as far as the emotional toll, I will tell you, there's a toll that people aren't talking about, which is when these officers, when these departments are short staffed, and the vast majority are short staffed, they're filling the gaps with overtime officers. You're turning a three year officer into a twenty year veteran that isn't happy. And the toll that takes over time, that cumulative toll is tremendous. So I think in the next five or six years, you're going to see quicker retentions. You're going to see more issues. You're going to see more. It's going to continue until we until we figure this thing out. And it all comes down to leadership. Nobody will ever do a job, Randy, if the job's impossible. And many of our leaders have made the job impossible. So you fix it all with leadership. But I will tell you right now, as far as the emotional toll, it's something I've never thought I would see, and it's at an all-time high level. The job that you and the Wounded Blue, Randy, we need we need a hundred of you. I'm telling you, people are hurting, and they're suffering, and they turn and they turn, and they have no help except for you know you and hopefully maybe their family. But the people inside their own agencies oftentimes are the ones that turn their back on them, and that hurts worse than anything. You 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 characterize it 100% correctly. And I, it's heartbreaking to see. Um, now, I want to talk about the direct correlation between what you just mentioned, every, every aspect of what you just talked about, and how it affects policing in the community. I mean, we've called it uh, certain things. De-policing is one of the phrases that we've used. It is very real. It is, it, and it's, it's shocking to me that it is not being talked about more frequently right? or with the gravity that it really that really entails because our cops are just saying i'm not going to get involved why should i and of course that not only does that affect the crime fighting ability of of that police agency but it also affects the emotional well-being because a cop wants to be a cop we took this job 
to put bad guys in jail and to do and to play a role in our community that, as a protector. If you can't do that because of the of, of, of this outside influence, that affects the, the physical, mental well-being of these police officers. And how do you see de-policing as it is as it is now affecting our law enforcement uh, community? Well, fraud was committed against every American police officer because everybody came into this job. We're told, go out there, fight crime, you know, help people, take bad guys to jail. We got your back. And then they got into the job and they figured out that was a lie. They don't have my back when I do this job. And so it doesn't take very long for them to look around and go, well, I just won't do the job as I thought I would do it because I'm trying to self-preserve myself. Randy, I hear this on a weekly basis. This is what I hear from cops around the country. And the reason you don't hear a lot of leaders talking about this is because when they talk about this, they're talking about themselves. Okay, they're going to tell on themselves and they're not going to do that because these leaders love to pat themselves on the back and, and talk about all these great achievements they've had when they're destroying our profession oftentimes. This is what the cops tell me. They said, Travis, the call goes out. I, I don't have to stop anybody. There's no mandate for that, so I don't stop anybody. But I still have to go to the 911 calls. So when the call comes out, I look at my watch and I wait about seven, eight minutes. And I wait to make sure there will be no encounter with anybody that, that could that could turn bad. And then I roll that way. I'm a glorified report taker. That is said to me more often than not. Uh, a lot of people over police departments will tell you that's not true, but they're lying to you because they know it's true because they're seeing the data and they're seeing the stats, but they can't be honest about it because they'd be telling on themselves. And, and you're right. I think this is probably a huge reason on the retention issue as well. People are doing a job that they were lied to about and uh, it was fraud committed on. I'll give you a quick example. If, if uh, an accountant went to work every day and every time they did taxes, someone would run in their office and call them a racist and their boss screamed at them, how long would that accountant do taxes? They wouldn't. They'd go and sit and watch the TV. They wouldn't even do the taxes because it triggered being called a racist and then being threatened with discipline or some boss getting mad at you. And so that's what's happened to law enforcement when they actually do their job the way they're supposed to, the way we know that works. This is not unique, Randy. We, we lowered crime in the 90s to some of the lowest in history based on police work, taking bad people to jail, enforcing crimes. So we know how to do that. But when we do that, when we face being called names and being canceled or being arrested or being in prison or being disciplined or being fired, and you're not going to do that. And so until that changes, it's not coming back. We're in a depolicing era that will be forever until that changes. And here's the other thing that I've often thought about. What about the people we're hiring right now that hires into the depolicing era? They actually don't know what police work is like. So if there ever came a time that we wanted to get our brain cells back together and do police work, will they even know how to do that? Because they were trained in an environment where they were told, don't do that much. We're in a really tough, we're in a tough fix, man. We're in a tough fix. Law enforcement is facing probably, this is the most challenging time in history for American law enforcement. Um, where can people contact you and uh, obtain your training? Your training is some of the best I've ever seen. Um, you know, uh, for the for the f folks that that uh, are are active in in the profession, how can they contact you and get more information about you? Thanks, Randy, and I'll, I'll pitch you. You and I will be up in Eureka, Nevada uh, next year doing a leadership conference that week, so I'm looking forward to that. But it's pretty easy. Just TravisYates.org. Just put .org behind my name. That'll launch you, and we do weekly articles. We do weekly podcasts. 
uh, and all the training information is on there. If you have any questions, you can reach out. I even have my phone numbers right on there. You can reach out to me and talk to me. But uh, I, I enjoy doing it. It's a blessing to do. One day the phone, I'm sure, will quit ringing. But until it doesn't, I'm going to keep doing the best I can to help others. And, and, I, and Randy, I, 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 uh, I, I'm very honored that uh, I've called you a friend for many years. And just to be around you, you've mentored me. And you're doing such wonderful work. And I, I can't thank you and the Wounded Blue enough and for all your team on what you're doing for the profession. And, and I also want to tell the audience, lawofficer.com is one of the most trusted sources of law enforcement news. And, uh, get, and guess who is the editor-in-chief and chief bottle washer of, <laughs> of lawofficer.com? None other than Travis Yates. So make sure that you go to lawofficer.com to get all your law enforcement news. And uh, it, it is truly uh, the, the premier um, law enforcement news site. Thank you. Travis, thank Thanks. you so much for joining me here at uh, the Wounded Blue Hour. Thank you, Randy, so much. As we say goodbye, I want to uh, implore you to go to thewoundedblue.org, see who we are, see what we do. Uh, if you are in need for assistance, please reach out. We're a confidential uh, support group, and uh, uh, if you if you have the ability to donate, help us with our mission. Go to thewoundedblue.org and hit that donate button. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, at another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour on the America Out Loud Network.